What's up guys, welcome back to the No Bullcrap Podcast. We got a really special one for you today, but before we get into it, if you want to pick up one of these awesome hats right here, got a cool little flag on there, go to defender-gear.com, use code Reagan10, you'll get 10% off. It's almost Christmas time and you need to pick up a good patriotic gift for your patriotic friend or family member. So I am here in the Wall Builders Library with my good friend, Tim Barton. And uh, first of all, thank you for your time. Thank you for this yeah, interview. Buddy. But real quick before we get into it, give us a quick little brief overview. What is Wall Builders? For a lot of my listeners that don't know, my, Absolutely. De- my demographic is pretty young. So maybe not a lot of people have heard of what you guys do. What is Wall Builders? So first of all, the name Wall Builders comes from the Bible book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah was one of the Israelites, part of the Babylonian captivity. And Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. And he was so grieved that his nation had been destroyed. Jerusalem had been torn down. The king saw him really sad and said, what's wrong? He said, I just feel bad because of my home being destroyed. The king said, I don't want you to be sad. Go back and rebuild it. Nehemiah actually is the one who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem in this Babylonian captivity. And one of the things that the Bible says, Nehemiah 2.17, he had this challenge to the people. He said, come, let us rebuild that we may no longer be reproached. And my dad, back in the 80s, looked at America and thought, we really need to work to help rebuild America. Uh, some of the moral issues, educational issues, right? You can kind of go down the list, political issues, all those things. Yeah. Even back in the 80s, they were a problem. And so he kind of felt like God was calling him to be in Nehemiah. Let's go rebuild this. So that's where the term wall builders comes from. It's to like, go build that section of the wall. Yeah. Uh, and so what we do is a lot with American history. And what we say is we present America's forgotten history and heroes, emphasizing the religious, moral, and constitutional aspects. And so we are in a place where we have a lot of great artifacts, items, show and tell that relate to the moral, the religious, or the constitutional aspects of the nation. And so we just try to tell people those stories, help them understand that there was a moral, a religious foundation to America, and the Constitution is really effective and good when it's used the way the founders intended. So it's trying to restore that core of what America is. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And guys, you gotta go and check out their website and pick up a lot of their materials. So many great things. Um, I've been you know, working with these guys. My dad's been working with them for 20 plus years now. And so I've grown up around their environment and just the history, everything you learn from them is just absolutely incredible. So um, let's jump into the meat of it, man. Tell me, Tim, why should people study history? Why should we even know what happened in the past? Um, especially with uh, people who are just focused on the future yeah. and want to affect the future. Why is it so important that they actually know what happened before? So the old adage is those who don't know the past are doomed to repeat it. Yes. Right? You're always going to learn in life either from your experience or somebody else's experience. And we have a generation that is more set on learning from their own bad experiences than going, wait a second. Instead of us trying socialism and pretending like this is going to work for the first time in the history of ever, why don't we look at all the other nations that have tried socialism and it's never succeeded for any nation? And I guess it depends on how we define success. But if you are someone who likes money, if you like freedom, no nation has embraced socialism where it's increased prosperity or individual liberty. Yeah. Well, I like money and freedom, and I would like more of both of those, please, right? Yes. And so this is where learning from history makes a big difference. And so whether, as a person of faith, I can even point to the Bible where so often throughout scripture, God would tell the Israelites to set up this altar. And so when somebody says, why is this there? Set up these stones, why is this there? And they can tell the story so you don't lose the essence of what's there. What God would tell them with the commands, write this, everywhere over your house, right? The doorposts, everywhere you go, people need to see that they need to remember. And one of the things God wanted to remember was who he was and what he had done for them. Well, that's what we call history, right? History is a telling of where we've come from, what God has done in this nation and through people. And the reality is that people that don't study history 
are going to be in a situation thinking, well, I've got this great idea. But again, if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. Your great idea might have failed 47 times, right, in the last 300 centuries. But if we don't know history, then we don't recognize that that can be a guidepost force. One of the things from math, if not that a lot of people like math, and that's okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually despise more of the English aspect, right? Yeah, I like I, I never understood why do I need to diagram a sentence? Like never in my life as an adult, right? If I've been like, I know how to solve this problem. Diagram the sentence. Yeah. Like some things I don't really understand. But I've actually used more geometry than I have ever trying to diagram right? a sentence. <laughs> well, so for me, like physics, there were some things that made more sense. Yeah. Uh, but for, for math, if you were charting a graph, right? You have to know two points. You have to know where you are and where you want to be. Part of how you know where you are is you know where you came from, right? And this is how you study trending graphs. The, the only way you can know if you are up and down, you have to know where you came from, and then you have to know where you want to be. So if we came from here, and right now we're here, and we want to be here, well, well, then I see where I have to go. But you have to know where you are. Part of how we know historically, or where we are in reality, is knowing historically where we came from, because that gives us an idea of our trajectory of what we're doing with freedom, with morality, and education, and politics, whatever the case is. So knowing history becomes very important for people that are future-oriented. Because I know a lot of people, they're like, man, I, I don't care about that, I care about the future. The only way you really can know how to direct the course, you have to know where you came from to know which way you're going. Yeah, they're really passionate and they wanna do good for the world, for the country, but they have to have a, a guiding force or a manual, if you will, on how things work best yeah. to, to get that change that they want for the future. Right. And that's kind of a, a, a cultural thing Overall, for people who want to make a, a big difference, you talk about how um, in order to know where you want to go, you got to know where you came from. So if you want to make a difference in any area of your life um, and learning from the examples of other people, it's, it's knowing how to observe and learn from other people's mistakes. Right. And, and this is kind of a thing in my generation. We all feel like we have to go off and make our own mistakes in order to learn. But it's like, no, if you just listen to your elders yeah. and your mentors, you can learn from their mistakes yeah. that they made and not go make those same ones, so it's the same with history. And, and it's not to abandon individuality, mm. right? Because everybody, this is not just new for your generation, like me, mm -hmm. that I'm obviously a little older than you, right? But like what? everybody, <laughs> everybody wants to be their own person right. and they, they don't wanna walk in somebody else's shadow, right? So sometimes we even wanna separate from family because I don't wanna just be somebody's son or somebody's sibling, somebody's brother, right? I wanna be me. So we, we always want independence. But people that are wise recognize even though we want independence, right? We can go, I'm gonna do my own thing, but I'm not gonna do the dumb thing on my own. Right. Right? And this is where there's that that give and take. Cause sometimes people think, well, because somebody told me not to, that's what I'm gonna do. It. No, that's just being dumb. Yeah. Right? You can be independent, but you can still learn from the wisdom of others. And sometimes even the wisdom of other people's life experiences, not always that they're giving you great advice, but it's like, no. I've watched you get divorced four times. <laughs> I'm not gonna do anything you've been doing because it doesn't work if I want to have a successful marriage. Yeah. I can learn wisdom from your failed experiences and I don't have to go through that same mistake you went through. This is part of, again, studying history. And a lot of people look at history and they're like, man, but it's so boring. The way history is taught today, unfortunately, is so boring in so many places. Now, I would tell people, Study the Greens, study the Bartons. Look at right? wall builders. Yep. We don't make history boring. Yeah. We want to tell the stories and, and you learn from the stories, right? I don't learn from dates and places 
I learned from learning the story and stories are not boring, right? It's actually gonna be very fascinating and interesting. Did you know this app? That's so crazy. We learned the story. I mean, there's a reason Hollywood exists. Yes. All they do is tell stories. We love stories. That is great. If we would know the stories of history, not only could we learn from them, but it would help us chart our course to where we wanna go in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, guys, there's muskets and rifles right behind Tim, okay? Cut to the B-roll. Okay, so Tim, let's, uh, I'm gonna ask like the main question that I wanna really get into. Why do Christians need to be involved in politics? It's separation of church and state, man. It's like, don't you know that you're not supposed to bring your faith, don't bring religion in the political world and into government. Why is, why are people saying that? And why should yeah. we as Christians be involved in the government? So let me, let me ask a question that would preface why maybe we should. Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. Mm -hmm. Right? A city set on a hill can't be hidden. Neither people light a lamp and put it under a bushel and bushel. Instead, they put it up on a lamp saying it was light to all that are in the house. When Jesus told the Sermon on the Mount, he was outside the Sea of Galilee. Beside the Sea of Galilee, there was a massive city up on a hill. Mm -hmm. Right? So in theory, as he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you're like a city up on a hill. He's pointing to something everybody can yeah. see. Okay, so this is significant because he's explaining there's no way you can be around here and not see that. When he says that the salt loses saltiness, it's good for nothing but to be trodden underfoot by men. Here's my question. Should we be salt and light inside the church or outside the church? Yeah. Because I would argue, right, we're not supposed to be salt and light inside the church and we're leaving, we're like, okay, everybody on their own, right? Like, good luck to you, because I don't do that. No, no, you, you can't name an area that God doesn't want to be a part of that area. Right, the, the reality. And if someone says, well, no, 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 maybe God wants to be part of entertainment because there can be Christian music or Christian movies, right? Maybe God wants to be part of business because Chick-fil-A, right? Thank you, Lord, <laughs> right? M maybe God wants to be part of, of some of these areas, mm -hmm. but not government. Show me that in the Bible. Where did right? that idea really originate? And first of all, for people that don't know, where did the term separation of church and state come from? Okay, so if you back up historically, Thomas Jefferson, when he was elected president, he had first been a leader in Virginia, governor of Virginia, and he was really the guy in charge of helping bring religious freedom to Virginia, because Virginia, go back to the days of Jamestown, was established as an Anglican colony under the king. Saying Anglican colony really means that when the king established it, the king at that time, and this was true for all of Europe, the kings would choose a religion, and they would call it a state religion, and everybody in their state had to practice that religion. It's the reason so many founding father ancestors came to America, right? You can go back to the pilgrims. Why did they come? Looking for religious freedom because of what the king was doing. Uh, William Penn, right? The founder of Pennsylvania. Why did he come? Religious freedom. You can go through name after name after name. They came looking for religious freedom. Virginia was a state that was still at the time of the founding fathers had a state established religion because it had always been a British colony. The British said, well, we're Anglicans. Everybody here has to be an Anglican. Thomas Jefferson as governor and really as a leader in the state fought for religious freedom for everybody. That you ought to be able to be in Virginia and if you want to be a Quaker, if you want to be a Congregationalist, if you want to be a Methodist, if you want to be a Baptist, you should have freedom in the state. You shouldn't be compelled to believe in a certain doctrine that you might not believe in. So when Jefferson gets elected president, there's a group of Baptists and they write him a letter and they say, Mr. Jefferson, you did so much great work 
in Virginia. We really look up to you. We honor you. We think you're awesome. Can you do something to make sure that the nation as a whole will never compel us in our faith and belief? Jefferson writes him a letter back, January 1st, 1802. And in the letter he writes him back, he says, you don't need to worry about the federal government ever getting involved and telling you what to do. He says, through the First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, he says, Congress has thereby erected a wall of separation between church and state to protect you from the federal government. Mm. Now, this is significant because Jefferson was not implying that the federal government had to be secular. What he was absolutely adamant about was the government could never compel us how we would worship God or make us be part of one specific denomination, which is what the kings were doing in Europe. So that's where this phrase separation of church and state came from. It wasn't until the mid-1900s the U.S. Supreme Court had a decision, Everson versus Board of Education, where the Supreme Court for the first time quoted that statement from Thomas Jefferson without actually reading the letter. And when they quoted the statement, they said, we've always misapplied Jefferson's intent. We need to apply it in a different way. And their reapplication in a different context is what's brought the idea today that, that we shouldn't have religion in certain public arenas. We shouldn't have religion in public school. We shouldn't have religion in government or politics. That, that religion really belongs in the church. But as a Christian, show me that in the Bible. Yeah. Right? right. Because if you've read the Old Testament ever, first of all, who are the ones who were choosing the leaders? It was always a prophet. Mm -hmm. It was a man of God. Right? And not only was the man of God choosing the prophet, the man of God was also, or the prophet rather, choosing the king. The prophet was also going and saying, King, you're being ungodly. You need to do this. It, it was always religious leaders giving insight and guidance to political leaders. That's good. That's even true in the New Testament. So this notion that as Christians, we wouldn't want to promote biblical things in government, well, that's just dumb. Mm -hmm. But that is what people hear. And if we're supposed to be salt and light, if you're salty over here, but you're not salt and not like, Modern salty, right? But like Jesus salty, right? Come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're not the salt of the earth in every area, well, then you've lost your seasoning. Yeah. And Jesus said, okay, at this point, you're good for nothing. So if we're going to say, no, I'll be salt over here, but not over there. Okay, then Jesus said, if the salt loses its flavor, it's good for nothing to be thrown underfoot and let people step on it because there's no value in mm -hmm. it. If we're not going to be salt in every arena, Jesus said we have no value in what we are doing as a Christian because we've lost our perspective. Mm, that's good, man. How, how big of a, uh, of a bridge do you think it is to get, to get rid of this whole idea that religion shouldn't be in politics? I mean, it feels like the, that gap is so big that we've Huge. created such a, that false narrative is so big now in our country that, I mean, do you ever see us getting to a, back to a widespread acceptance to Christianity and religion in general back in government? So this is one of the things that we would go back to the first question, why is it important to know history? Because we studied the founding fathers, right? All of the early founding fathers, pretty much without exception, when they were leaders of governments, whether it be a, as a governor of a state, when they were president, they actually would have times calling the nation to pray, calling their states to pray, because they, they wanted their people to remember, we need God's help. We need to acknowledge who he is. We need to serve him and follow him. The Bible was taught in schools. If we studied history, we'd realize that actually the founding fathers, they knew we had to have a moral foundation for America to build. Mm -hmm. And we are now in a place where we think we can be really strong without a moral foundation. That's, that's not going to work well. So first of all, if we'd study history, we'd know the answer. But the second thing, and this is where I think probably you and I are, are much more in that direction, is just as Christians, if we would read our Bible more, and if we would just let the Bible impact the way we think and how we live, 
then we would think I, I want to be a godly example and influence everywhere I can. Mm-hmm. In every arena that I go into, I wanna take right the presence of God, the spirit, the power of God with me. And so if I'm gonna vote, if I'm gonna help campaign with somebody, if I'm gonna encourage something, government politics, everything I do, I want it to be from a biblical perspective. And so I think the big deal is if, if, if we read the Bible more, it would change our thinking of a lot of the modern perceptions and culture and, and this is where I think for us as Christians, we just need to spend more time in God's Word and let our thinking be shaped by the Word. This is where Paul says, don't be conformed yes. to the pattern of the world. Yeah. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't think the way the world thinks. Yeah. Think the way the Bible teaches. And if we just study the Bible enough to let that shape our thinking, we'd get over this pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, the, there's those people that might not disagree with what we're saying that Christianity and religion should be in politics, but they just don't feel like they can have any kind of effect in politics. Sure. They're just not motivated. It's like a totally separate world yeah. than, you know, my little safe little world over here. So, I mean, especially as Christians, why is it so important that we get into that arena and we get in the fight for freedom? Well, especially because we are in a republic and a lot of people say, well, we're a democracy. Okay, that, that's painful, Yeah. right? <laughs> because people get to vote for leaders, they think that makes us a democracy. No. Having leaders that represent you makes you a republic. And voting for those leaders is just the method of electing the leaders for the republic, right? So people say, well, we're a democratic republic. Okay, if that makes you feel better about it, that's fine. We are a republic, but right. when, when we are in a position where we get to choose the leaders we have, if we have people who are ungodly and promote ungodliness in society, mm-hmm. okay? Well, whose fault is that? Well, certainly it's the leader's fault for being ungodly. Yeah, but who chose the ungodly leader? Mm-hmm. Right? right? As Christians, okay, and this is a big picture perspective. If I elect someone who is in favor of aborting babies, who is in favor of saying kids in elementary school ought to be able to have transgender surgery operations without parental consent, right? Like all these crazy, ridiculous things that people are actually saying and promoting today. If I vote for that person and that person does crazy, awful things, here's my big picture thought. When that elected official stands before God, they're going to be so ashamed and have a really hard judgment day giving account for what they've done. I'm going to say all the people that voted for that person equally Hmm. are going to have a hard time when God says, why would you vote for someone who would do that? Because he was the nicer person. (laughs) Really? Like, it's so shallow and superficial, but so often as Christians, we're not strategic thinkers. We're, we're not yeah. deep thinkers. We're not biblical right. thinkers. And so as Christians, we have to be a little more strategic in recognizing that because we have a representative government, we have to be part, part of how we are salt and light is we have to be salt and light in who we choose to represent us. And sometimes people look at the candidates and they're like, these two people are both awful. Because I kind of thought that back when it was Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, I was like, oh yeah, we did too. We were right wow, there with you. Wow, right? These people, is, I'm not, and obviously people watching now, they're like, how dare you, we, you know, whatever. Okay, I get it. That's fine. I'm not saying where I am today, but where, where I was. Right. In this reality, one of the things that, that I said is when, when you look at these two people, I felt like Hillary was kind of the biblical example of a Jezebel, where <laughs> like Jezebel in the Bible hated the things of God yeah. and hated the people of God. Yep. Hillary Clinton has never been really a promoter of conservative Christianity, doesn't really like those ideas. So that that was kind of the Jezebel perspective, right? We want to get rid of those people. Mm. President Trump reminded me a little bit more of a Samson, right? Where Samson wasn't really godly in his life, Mm -hmm. 
but he did fight for the people of God in many times. And this is something I think has been born true with President Trump is he, he really has not always been the most godly in his lifestyle. Although as president, he's been a lot more impressive than I expected him to be on a lot of areas. But he was someone who fought for the unborn. He fought for families. He fought for religious freedom. He wanted to be friends with Israel. Things that biblically, I think we could argue are very important things. And so when you have somebody promoting the right principles, one of the things that makes a bigger difference in our nation, the Bible tells us righteousness exalts a nation. Well, what determines righteousness is not somebody's personality, it's their policies. Mm, yeah, that's good. If you have a leader who is enacting pro-life policies, even if that leader is a jerk, they've still made your nation more righteous because of the policies that are being enacted. Because if, if we now are gonna spare innocent babies from being murdered, God can honor that, Yeah. right? Yeah. Even if your leader is a jerk or tweets dumb things, that's okay. Policies impact righteousness far more than somebody's personality does. And this is where as Christians, we have to look at the policies, but recognize the only way we get righteousness, Jesus said to seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness, right? Matthew five, he says, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. We should be so concerned with righteousness as a Christian, that should be a pursuit for us. But we also want righteousness in the nation. How do we get righteousness? We have to have righteous policies. So I'm not just looking at, at what candidate is the nicest or the most fatherly or grandfatherly. No, who's gonna have the most righteous policies? And in a republic, we get to choose those kind of policies. And so we vote for righteousness in policy. Don't get caught up in personality, vote for policy, because that will impact the righteousness of the land. Yeah, that's great, man. And do you think that, I mean, because ugh, it, people are really so shallow, we look at personality a lot more than we do policy for most Americans. but. Um, do you think Trump is just changing the way we view the presidency here in America? And are we going to get back to a more, I guess, civilized or more um, mannerful, if I could make up a word, yeah. mannerful kind yeah. of guy or person for a president? I mean, do you see us getting back to a George Washington-esque type guy? Or is he going to just, are we going to see a lot more sure. Trumps from here so, 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 So two thoughts. The first one is Trump gets criticized a lot for demeaning politics, like bring it down to level. Trump is not what brought politics down, right? You can back up to the president before Trump who talked about people clinging to their God and their guns. There was an awful lot of negative criticism against conservatives, right? Cancel culture existed long before Donald Trump. Trump was the response to cancel culture. Hmm right? Where everybody was like, you know what? I'm done with this. Yep. And as a Christian, I didn't do this, but a lot of people were like, Trump is my middle finger to all you people <laughs> criticizing me, right? Yeah. Like he wasn't my middle finger because I tried to throw that at people, right? Yeah. But like reality, it was like, no, no, you have, you have criticized me and, and, and you've now accused me of being guilty of things that I've been against and I'm not in favor of. And, and you are now going to try to put me under as I mean, even people today are saying, right, maybe these people who voted for Trump, they, they should go to some kind of training to deprogram the negative thoughts they have, wow. right? I mean, this is very, very kind of Nazi-esque yeah, talk. For real. And we're trying to deprogram the people that voted for the wrong side. That's Winston in an electric chair trying to oh, dude. change his mind. <laughs> I mean, 1984, yeah, it is- If you don't get the reference, go read the book 1984 by George Orwell, you'll get that. It is shocking. Yes. So with that being said, I, Trump gets criticized for this. I don't think he, he's not the one that brought this there, but big picture, how do we change this? Right. We often look at a culture 
that has gone the wrong direction and think we need a big picture fix. Most of the time, the big picture is not fixed with a, a sweeping change. It's changed from little steps to the bottom. And the reason that our culture is so uncivilized is because most families actually live pretty uncivilized, Yeah. right? If we're not respectful to our parents, which parents have to teach their kids to be respectful. One of the things we learned growing up in the South, yes, sir, <laughs> yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Right? Bottom line. And, and, and for us growing up, a lot of times we would talk to some adults and they'd be like, oh, don't say sir, ma'am, just call me this. Wanting to be friendly, right? Wanting to make a very positive, nice gesture, not recognizing that what we are actually doing is training respect and honor. Manners come from learning respect and honor. Yeah. And the way we turn this around is we start with our families, yeah. right? So my wife and I, we have a one and a half year old. One day you're married with kids we have to have people who now start training that in the next generation because you can't take a generation that's gone the wrong way and say, how do we bring all of them back? Well, you, you might not. But what you can do is say, okay, in my family, we're gonna do it different. In my family, I'm gonna make sure that we're teaching respect, which this is one of the things that we would tell single girls, right? You're looking for a guy who will respect you as a lady, right? Not as an object, not as some sexual thing, right? Not because he's bored or lonely, no, no, no. You want someone that's gonna respect you. Well, how do you know if he's gonna respect you? How does he treat his mom? Mm. Right? Yeah. I mean, th th this is the bottom line. For, for my kids, I'm gonna teach them to be respectful and honoring for me and my wife right. because it's gonna help them in their future relationships. But we start with teaching the next generation. So a lot of it's gonna start with us and our family saying, we're gonna do it different than what everybody else is doing. And when we do it different, we're raising a different generation that will produce a different result. Yeah, absolutely. And you answered my next question, which was gonna be how we restore manners in our, in our culture. And even farther than the Christian community, but in the secular culture as well, because it does exist in the secular culture, but just not as clearly. Um, but I mean, obviously, like you're saying, it starts in the family, it starts with getting back in the church, getting God back in the culture. So. Um, Assuming we can do all of that, that would kind of help restore manners. Absolutely. But one thing that I've been curious about, and I was thinking about this on the way, was political correctness. From the left's point of view, political correctness would be some form of manners, respecting towards others by not trying to offend people and censoring oh, what yeah. you say, right? Oh, but, yeah. But it just seems backwards to me. Like, it, it would, it's disrespectful to censor what. I want to say if it's truth and if it's if it's honoring to who I think it's honoring to. So, I mean, how do we get back to, and first of all, how do we just get rid of political correctness in general? I think a lot of people are wondering that. But how do we um, how do we combat this, this, this idea that things have to be censored in order to protect people's feelings and not hurt people's feelings? It's a great question. So I, I think one of the challenges with political correctness, even though for a lot of the younger generation, right, we're thinking, okay, but I don't want to be offensive, even as a Christian, right? Well, we, we shouldn't be offensive, which I'll come back to the Christian thought in a second, yeah. because yeah. if you think you shouldn't be offensive to a Christian, you have not read the Gospels because Jesus was offensive to so many people, oh, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just go read how he treated these scribes and Pharisees. Now, they were self-righteous people who were condemning other people. The, the Bible is very clear that God always gives grace to the humble, mm -hmm. but he resists the proud. So if you're prideful, you can expect to be offended because he's going to lay the smack down on you. Yeah. He did it all the time. Now, big picture. This notion that we shouldn't be offensive to people, the more important question to ask is who determines what's offensive? Mm -hmm. Because I can tell you as a kid who was born in the 80s, that you back up to the 80s and people didn't think it was offensive to say that marriage should be between one man and one woman. Because mm -hmm. that's what everybody wow, accepted. Wait, whoa, guys, Tim was born in the 80s. Can we just go back? No. <laughs> <laughs> so stranger things like, yeah. yes. 
That was when I grew up. Like all of those outfits, I'm like, I remember that. That bicycle, I remember that. Those are my people, okay? So yes, if you've seen that, right. you know, like yes, that, that's when I grew up that we didn't have those aliens, but okay, everything yeah, else, pretty accurate, spot on. So this notion that political correctness is stopping people from saying things offensive, the, the, the slippery slope is who determines what's offensive, mm-hmm. who determines what's right and wrong. One of the reasons the founding fathers, back up again to, to the Bible, the founding fathers understood you have to have a moral foundation to build on so that everybody has the same standard of right and wrong. We live in a culture now that says, well, everybody should do what they think is right because everybody determines right for themselves. Hmm. Right. Well, to me, here's what I think is right. Now, that's a really dumb position to be in for lots of reasons, right? Because if we're going to say that, that truth is purely subjective, then you can never say anybody is ever wrong, ever. Because if they thought it was right, who were you to say they were wrong? Exactly. Okay, exactly. now, maybe the next step up is, okay, so it's not subjective morality. It's, it's collective morality. So we'll let society determine what's right and wrong. Okay, but now you're presuming that society is either always gonna get it right or society has a standard that is always correct. Hmm. But when your standard is constantly changing and society is more swayed by emotion than they are by what is true, and for people that might be confused by that notion, first of all, if you're a Christian, I would back you up and point out that when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it's called Palm Sunday because everybody took palm branches, and right, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. People are throwing down their jackets because they're making this smooth path for him to ride this donkey. And they're praising this guy's God. He's Jesus. He's awesome. Five days later, those exact same people are yelling, crucify the bum. We hate him. Yep. That's what a society does when they have no moral foundation of absolutes to build on. Yeah, right? When, when we're swayed by emotion, one day we're like, I love this. Five days later, I hate that person, mm-hmm. right? right? And and not that anybody watching- It just watching, becomes survival of the fittest. Right, and not that anybody watching has ever been in that place, but you probably know somebody, maybe, like the girl at one point who's like, oh, you're my best friend, right? <laughs> and the next week they're like, I hate that person. She's a gossip, blah, blah. And you're like, oh yeah. my gosh, right? Dramatic. Right. right. That's humans. Imagine that with truth and morality. It's just completely unstable. So. This is why the founding fathers, when, when you back up even the Constitutional Convention, um, Benjamin Franklin, when he gave the longest speech he gave, he says that we have, we have searched all the ancient writings, studying every form of government, trying to figure out what was the best. And we have concluded that all of these are unsatisfactory. He, he goes to this speech and one of his conclusions was we have to get back to God. Thomas Jefferson said that he'd studied every single moral philosopher, every single religion. There was no greater religion, no greater moral teacher than Jesus. No greater religion than Christianity. Even Thomas Jefferson, right? The guy that people today think, well, he didn't really believe in Jesus or Christianity. That's really a bad take on Jefferson and people don't really know all of the story of Jefferson. No. They just kind of know the modern narrative, which is not accurate. But, but even guys like a Benjamin Franklin, who was not a Christian by his own writings, so to speak, um, with a couple years left in his life, which first of all, I'll back up. Uh, when he was early, he wrote his first autobiography. And in that autobiography, he said he was a deist. So most people say, well, Franklin even said he was a deist. He did say he was a deist when he was in his 20s. But read two sentences later, like literally, two sentences later in his autobiography, he says, but I soon realized that deism was of no benefit to me and of no use to anybody else. Wow. So I soon left that belief. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he was a deist for like a week and a half, right? <laughs> yeah. But 
he, he really was closer to the position of, of more of like a, a Orthodox Jewish person. Because Franklin, toward the end of his life, with just a couple months left to live, he wrote a letter to a guy named Ezra Stiles, who was a minister. He was the president of Yale University. He was a pastor as well. And he told him, my belief is that I believe there is one God, the creator of the universe. I believe that he's the rewarder of the good, the punisher of the wicked. I believe that he's given us the Bible for inspiration and for use in living in daily life. And it is inspired. And I believe that Jesus is the greatest moral teacher that's ever lived. Hmm. Now, Franklin then said, I'm not sure if Jesus was divine, but I know he was a good man. Hmm. Now, if you don't know if Jesus is divine, then you don't believe he's the son of God. If he's not the son of God, then he wasn't the savior, right? He can't pay the penalty of your sins. So I would argue, I don't think Franklin's a Christian, but, but Franklin still believed in the Bible. When he was a governor of Pennsylvania, he actually encouraged everybody in Pennsylvania to go to church. The reason was, he said, if people would go to church, we would have fewer crimes in Pennsylvania because people who are faithful church attenders are not the people who are the criminals and the thieves and the trespassers. Yeah. Well, it's actually true, right? If you are learning the moral foundation, so, so even guys who weren't specifically Christians are still saying, I want you not only to go to church, I want you to study the Bible, I want you to study Jesus, they knew there had to be a moral foundation and that the moral foundation couldn't be what you think is right. There has to be absolutes. Right. So we're going to base it on the word of God. And, and this is where now with political correctness, it's it, the standard changes every single year. Sometimes every week it changes. Yeah, especially nowadays. Right, like <laughs> literally. Yeah. Like I thought last week that was okay. Well, not anymore. Who determines? Yeah. And, and this is the and only question. And even that seems to be changing. Yes. You know? Yes. One news station says something's okay, and then another one says it's not, and then they flip-flop week well, in, week out. Well, yeah. What, what, did, what did the mass mob say on Twitter? Oh, well, we have to change this now because yeah. the woke people on Twitter said this. Yeah. So, so there if is the blue no, check marks say it's bad, then it's bad. Right. You know? There is no standard, and, and this is where it becomes very dangerous because if there is no standard, if everything is subjective, right, this is where you look back to past communist regimes where they literally murdered hundreds or t at least tens of millions of people, depending on mm -hmm. the regime, but more than 100 million people, right? Murdered in the last 100 years under communist regimes mm -hmm. because if there is no absolute moral standard of right and wrong, which is not subjective or subject to the individual as a leader mm -hmm. or subjective to every individual who determine for themselves, when we go to that place, that's where you find people walking into schools and, and, and killing elementary kids. That's mm -hmm. where you find people going into churches and killing people in churches because mm -hmm. to them it was okay. Yeah, That's not the world we wanna live in. We yeah. need a world where there is an absolute standard. John Adams said that our constitution was made only for a moral and a religious people. Hmm. It was wholly inadequate to the government of any other, meaning that our nation will not function without religion morality. And he was very clear mm -hmm. that the religion we need is the religion of Jesus Christ and that of Christianity. So like from his own lips, like he's saying, if we don't have Christianity, if we don't have religion and morality, which was defined as Christianity, our constitution, our nation won't work. And, and this actually shouldn't be complicated. If we are in a nation that gives freedom to people, freedom only works if you have moral people, mm -hmm. right? Freedom without morality is Chicago on weekends, yep. right? Like that's not <laughs> the place necessarily you always wanna right. be because freedom with immoral people, they do immoral things. Mm -hmm. So the only way freedom, and by the way, if they're doing immoral things, the solution to that is you need more government so you have more police so you can stop all the bad things. Mm -hmm. There's only two ways to stop bad. Either you have to have a bigger government or you have to have a change of heart. Yep. What's gonna change the heart? This is where we believe God, Jesus, mm -hmm. right? Study the Bible, let that do an internal change because either you're gonna change on the inside, you, can, you, you either control yourself, self-control on the inside, 
or you're going to be controlled with somebody with a big stick or a baseball bat or a gun or a baton, mace. There's either going to be an internal or external force that controls you. Yeah. And and this is the reality. If we want to have freedom, we have to have a standard of morals. And some people might say, well, well, why does it have to be Christianity? Well, I don't think it does. Except I would argue that if, if we're going to say we need a moral code to follow, it probably would stand to reason that we should say, let's follow the highest moral code there is. Hmm. Okay. So now we should compare all the different moral teachers and philosophers. Mm-hmm. And all we have to do is ask who is the greatest moral teacher? Okay. Well, Jesus who taught. Do, who do most people say is the greatest moral right? teacher? And, and I mean, like, don't even take my word for it. Like, yeah. go study, right? Because mm-hmm. some people might say Gandhi, right? Well, I, I, I think Buddhism is the best for more. Like, there might be different answers. But let me just point out, Jesus said, treat other people the way you want to be treated. Mm-hmm. Right? L- love your neighbor as yourself. Those are his ideas of moral teachings. Find me someone who taught better morals than Jesus. And, and, and in intellectual honesty, if I want freedom in a nation, I would say, if you find better moral teachings, I would support every kid in school learning those moral teachings because mm-hmm. I want to live in freedom. Mm-hmm. I've just never found a better moral teacher than Jesus. Yeah. So if we're going to live in freedom, maybe we should study Jesus a little bit more in school because it would let us be free. And this is where this kind of progressive notion of, right, this this kind of socially woke notions of right and wrong, mm-hmm. it, it's not gonna be effective because the Bible even talks about when every man did what was right in their own eyes, it's the book of Judges, mm-hmm. right? When everybody determines truth for themselves, it actually leads to greater chaos and anarchy, which actually is what leads oftentimes to communism because people in these desperate situations say, we need a leader, somebody take care of it. And at that point, they're willing to sacrifice all their freedom for safety and security because they're tired of the anarchy. Well, the way to not have communism and the way to not have anarchy is you have to have a better moral system. And this is why some of this woke mentality of, of, well, today this is now wrong. That's not gonna work. Mm -hmm. You need an absolute standard that's not gonna change so that we're not just blown and tossed by whatever direction the wind is blowing that day, Mm. that we are anchored to something that lasts. Yeah, that's great, man. Last question that I'm gonna let you go. Everybody is freaking out, it seems, for uh, what is going to happen with this election. And I think a lot of people are looking for some hope for America and just for traditional values and everything that we stand for. Um, The country seems to be so divided. But um, the good thing is, even in hard times like this, we can be thankful and grateful for them because we are figuring out as a nation what we really stand for and people are trying to... finally realizing and deciding what they really believe and we're gonna yeah. find out what route we're gonna take as a nation going forward. But um, just give us some hope, man. Like, yeah. I mean, what's going on with America? Where can we see ourselves going? And we know where our hope re- and our Absolutely. faith relies in. It's, Absolutely. In, it's in Christ, but you know, as, as a nation that is built on freedom, where's our hope, man? Yeah, so, so obviously you already identified, right? Our, our hope is not set in something in this life, at least for Christians it's not, mm-hmm. right? Our hope is not in what happens in this temporal, physical realm. This is passing, it's fleeting. Yeah. My hope is in what is coming into eternity. The reality is no nation has lasted forever, mm-hmm. never, right? Now, I mean, you could argue like ancient Israel, they're still here. Yeah, they're still here, but they were conquered. They were slaves. Like right. they were not yeah. always at the top of the pedestal and, and no nation lasts forever in pinnacle and at the top. Mm-hmm. So the presumption that America will last forever, that's, that's a pretty faulty presumption just historically, even biblically. You, you don't even see that 
that in the, in the Bible, God kept the nation up top and they never endured judgment. They never endured punishment, right? They weren't ever conquered or defeated. Like, that, that's just not what happens. With that being said, I absolutely believe that there's a lot of hope for America. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, certainly as a Christian, I wanna be guided by the Bible. And I think one of the things that we are seeing is in America, based on whatever polling you look at, roughly 70% of Americans profess Christianity. And America sure doesn't look like we're 70% Christian because it used to be that saying you were Christian meant you were a follower of Jesus. And saying you were Mm -hmm. a follower of Jesus meant you were trying to emulate your life living like Jesus. Most people aren't really striving to live like Jesus unless they're trying to make Jesus look like them. And like, no, I think Jesus would have done this. It's fine, right? It's it's Mm -hmm. not like we're setting the Bible and saying, okay, Jesus did this, treated people this way, spoke kindly, humility, service, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of studying and living like him, sometimes we try to make him look like us and justify our own actions. That's not really what it means yeah. to live like Jesus. But yeah. I think one of the things that does give me hope is that one of one of the lessons we take away from the Bible is that when when we believe Jesus returns, he's going to return for a pure and spotless bride. But part of returning for a pure and spotless bride, there's a parable Jesus taught in Matthew 25 about the wise and the foolish virgins. Mm -hmm. And there were 10 virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom to come. And all these girls had these lamps. And back then you'd have oil in the lamp, right? You have the wick in it and you light the wick and the oil keeps the wick wet. And so Mm -hmm. the the lamp stays lit and so you would have light. And and so they're like, oh my gosh, we think the bridegroom's coming tonight. He's on his way. And five of the virgins had oil in their lamp. They were ready for the bridegroom to come. Five mm. of them are like, oh, we, well, I don't know what we're gonna do. And mm. so the five who are ready were like, you better get some oil real quick. While they ran to go get oil, the bridegroom shows up, took the five that are ready. The other five were like, well, we don't even know what happened to them, right? They're, they're gone. Yeah. The reality is, as a Christian, we have this, this mindset mentality sometimes that because God is so loving and God is so just and he's so fair that he's gonna accept me no matter what. Mm. Well, John, the Gospel of John, Jesus says that he's the vine, we're the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. In him, we will bear much fruit. Our fruit will last, it will remain. He says, but those branches that don't produce any fruit are gonna be cut off and thrown into the fire. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. What, what I think we are seeing is that there is, there's a winnowing that's happening, separating the wheat and the chaff, which is another biblical example, yeah. right? I, I think there's some separation going on which I think is actually a very healthy thing for the church. And it should even give us greater optimism as mm. Christians that maybe the day is getting even closer, <laughs> right, for God's return. So mm. I, I think just from a spiritual perspective, there's, there's a lot of reason we should have hope. Now, other big picture spiritual lessons in James 1, 2 through 4, consider mm-hmm. pure joy. My brethren, when you go through various trials, knowing that testing your faith produces perseverance, perseverance has to finish its work, that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Mm-hmm. There is a maturity process that God wants to do in us. And in American Christianity, we've been comfortable for so long because Christianity yeah. has always been the socially acceptable, trendy thing. Mm-hmm. And we are now coming to a place where we've no longer been teaching biblical truth to rising generations. So rising generations are now rejecting Christianity we are now in a place where most of the world has been, at least most of the Christians in the world have been for pretty much all time since Jesus, that it has not been really comfortable to be a Christian mm-hmm. where there has been outside persecution. And Jesus told the disciples, 
right? Don't think that a servant's greater than a master. They persecuted me, they're gonna persecute you. We yeah. shouldn't be surprised if there is persecution. Now, yeah. that's again, big picture spiritual. Let me also back up. I also recognize that Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Mm-hmm. Right, there were so many times the disciples were like, we don't know what to do. And Jesus is like, okay, you're lacking faith, right? <laughs> Whatever you have faith for, he said, according to your faith, be it unto you, right? Mm-hmm. So many miracles he did, because of your faith, you are well. Faith makes a big deal, but faith is trusting in God and who he is and his goodness, his faithfulness, that he's gonna do what he said he's gonna do. And one of the things that, that I always wanna be found guilty of is being optimistically faithful, right? <laughs> That, yeah. that I'm always gonna have faith in who God is and what he's gonna do. If, if you go back to the Old Testament, when the Israelites were gonna go and take Canaan, and there were 12 tribes, or 11 full tribes, two half tribes, but 12 <laughs> tribes, and, and they choose out leaders from the tribes, Book of Numbers. And this is where Joshua and Caleb, right, we know these names, right. but the 12 leaders went in and they looked at the land and they're like, okay, the land is amazing, but there's giants. And they said, and, and, and we were grasshoppers in our own sight. Hmm. they saw themselves as being defeated. Hmm. They saw themselves as not being able to be victorious. Joshua and Caleb are like, what are you talking about? We can do this. Joshua and Caleb believed they could do it because they remembered God was with them, right? That they were on God's side and God was calling them to what they were doing. I, I think as Christians, it's easy to get discouraged when we look at what we're dealing and we think that we have to fight this battle alone. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Right? We're not alone, right? Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world, what the Bible tells us. Right. So I'm always gonna be on the side of Joshua and Caleb that I, I'm not naive to the reality. There are some major giants in America, right? Mm-hmm. Even looking at this election, there's no way Trump can win this election. Like literally, there is no way he can win this election. There was also no way David could beat Goliath, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yep. The, Yep. That dude, David, he's never been in a battle in his whole life. <laughs> he's never going to win. What are we doing? Oh, we're all going to die. We're going to be slaves. <laughs> like, there's no way he can win. Right, right. Well, yeah, he, he had never fought in a war. Hmm. I mean, he had fought lions and bears, and he killed all of them. Yeah. Right? But, but this is the reality. What's impossible with man is possible with God. Mm-hmm. And if we, if we look only through fleshly eyes, then we will be overcome because our flesh says there's no way this can happen. Mm-hmm. One of the really, really great stories is where Elijah has a servant with him and they're in a city and there's a warrant out for his death. Mm. And the servant's like, our city is surrounded. We're gonna die. Mm. And he's like, you have no idea. <laughs> right? Like you, 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 you have no idea. Right. And he prayed, right God? Mm-hmm. Open his eyes to see. And his eyes were open and he looked and behind all of the king's army mm-hmm. was this massive army. Mm-hmm. Chariots, angels. He's like, oh, all right. I, I can just imagine <laughs> his face like, oh my gosh. Yeah. We so often look with our physical man eyes, that's what we're used to. Mm-hmm. There is a God. Because there is a God, there is always hope. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's always gonna work out our way. And actually, God's ways aren't our ways. Mm-hmm. So more often than not, it's not gonna go the way we want because what we wanted wasn't always God's plan, right? Because our heart sometimes gets pulled in a fleshly direction. God's got a better plan. I want God's plan to prevail because it's the best. Yeah. But I trust that God is able to overcome and do anything he wants to do. Mm. And that just because we look and go, well, there's no way Trump can win. 
doesn't mean God can't do it. Yeah. Right? Yep. Now, if he doesn't, that's also okay. Because it could be that God's been looking and going, you know what, since 1973, you've been mur murdering unborn children, and I've given you so many chances to fix this, and you haven't fixed it. Yeah. So you're going to have to endure some punishment until you, right, until you get this mm -hmm. fixed. The Bible tells us the Father disciplines the Son he loves. Mm -hmm. God loves us. Yeah. But nations also get disciplined, mm -hmm. right? And it doesn't mean every nation that's having hard times is always being disciplined. Sometimes they're just making terrible choices, mm -hmm. right? Socialism, that's a terrible choice, right. Right? right? Well, God's judging us. No, like you pretty much judge yourself on that one, right? <laughs> like don't blame God for your bad decisions. Yeah. But I mean, th there can be much bigger perspective than what we have. Mm -hmm. And I totally trust in God for this, but I'm also recognizing that just because this looks impossible doesn't mean God can't do it. Mm -hmm. And I am still praying and believing because I know, right, Moses, Israelites, they're backed up to the Red Sea. What can we do? Mm -hmm. God says, raise up your rod and walk on dry land. Yep. It's impossible, yep. but for God. We right. live our life, not in flesh eyes, we live our life recognizing, but God. Mm -hmm. This is so big, but God. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome, dude. Amen, brother. Uh, it just reminds me that God always can use a remnant to um, always. keep freedom alive and keep the hope alive that salvation is in His Son. And um, you're exactly right. I think no matter how bad it gets, there will always be that remnant as well to fight back. So, man, that was awesome. Thank you so much for your time. and Dude, good hanging um, out with you, man. For all this stuff. Love it's what really, you're doing. Really Thank you. So I think a lot of people are going to really enjoy this one. Um, and don't forget, guys, if you want to pick up one of those hats, go to defender-gear.com. Code Reagan 10 for 10% off. Make sure to share the podcast, spread the word. We will catch you guys in the next one.